Thank you all for coming. It's a, it's a real privilege to be with a group who really reveres God, who, who regard Him as precious. And the music tonight is just, it's been wonderful. Amen? Amen. <laughs> I wanted to see if my mic was working. Well, thanks for inviting me. Tonight we're going to consider five witnesses of God. And witnesses have been a big part of my life for a lot of years, for 25 years. Um, I was spending time in the court system, thankfully not as a defendant, but as a trial lawyer. And then for um, almost 20 years, I've served off and on as a trial judge for the state of Texas. So witnesses are a very important part of my professional life. And you use witnesses to prove the truth of something, that is, reliable witnesses. Uh, there is such a thing as an unreliable witness. The world is full of them. But if you want to know the truth about something that happened in the past, and you weren't there when it happened, then you're going to have to rely on witnesses. And if you want to know about the past of this world, uh, the past of your own family, the past of how you and I got here as human beings, and that's something we shouldn't take for granted. I mean, if you think about it, I didn't have to be made a human being. I could have been made a grackle. All right? Now, if you don't believe that, you just walk outside and you see a few grackles and there you go. I mean, God made them grackles. That could have been me. Could have been you too. But God wanted to make each one of us exactly the unique human being that each one of us is. But in order for us to understand our origins and where we came from and where the universe came from and where things like living things came from, animals, plants. What about this thing called death? Uh, why do people get in trouble? Where did sin come from? In order to understand the real truth about things in the past, we must rely on witnesses. Thankfully, God has given us witnesses. Uh, his word, obviously, is the perfect witness. But we're going to think about more than one category of witnesses tonight. And realize that God's witnesses always glorify God. Um, Acts 14, 17 says, and this was a situation where Paul was addressing a group of people who didn't understand the real God. He said, nevertheless, he, that is referring to God, nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he gave good, uh, in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So um, if you wanted to learn something about apologetics tonight, you just got a piece right there from Acts 14, 17. Food is apologetics. Every time you eat a meal and every time your body processes the food energy from that meal and uses it to power your body, you are demonstrating God's creatorship. 
you are demonstrating how wise he is, how powerful he is, what kind of bioengineering he did, what kind of a glorious creator he is just in eating a meal. And every meal that everybody eats is one more proof of God's creatorship. Well, um, I am a sinner happily saved by grace, and I'm not a grackle um, human. And we're going to look at the question of Genesis being on trial, because many in our society have put in their minds Genesis on trial. Um, We've got courts that think that they're smarter than the book of Genesis. I don't have to name any names, Um, but we'll go on to the next slide. We need to get rid of that guy. <laughs> okay. What if, uh, um, what if somebody asks, um, how was I supposed to know that God was God? Well, there's proof all over the place. And something doesn't stop being proof just because people don't believe it. People can say, well, I, I don't accept that. That doesn't change the fact that the proof is there. And so when people end their lives and they face God and all of those excuses don't seem so good anymore because he will be able to say, I gave you lots of proof of who I am. What did you do with it? Okay, let's go to the next slide. There we go. All right, let's think about deception for a minute. The world provides a lot of deception in order to dissuade you from taking God seriously and relying on his word as a guide for your life. And one of the ways that deception works is it it includes distraction. And here's a quote from a general who was very much involved in practical use and resisting forms of deception during World War II. And when he was given the responsibility in Northern Africa of sending in uh, tanks and trucks so that they didn't look like tanks and trucks from the air when reconnaissance airplanes were flying overhead, he had to find ways to disguise them so they didn't look like tanks and trucks from the air. Anyway, one of the things he said was, practically all of the ruses and stratagems of war are variations or developments of a few simple tricks. The elementary principle of all deception is to attract the enemy's attention to what you wish him to see and distract his attention from what you do not wish him to see. So if you don't want him to look at one thing, get him looking at something else. Now, you see uh, two faces that look pretty, pretty similar there on the left and in the middle. The one in the middle is the real General Montgomery. He was the lead general for Great Britain during World War II in planning the D-Day invasion of Normandy. But in order that the Germans would be fooled, thinking that he was doing something else, they found this actor named James, the guy on the left, And they said, let's dress him up in a general outfit. Let's put him on a plane. Let's send him to Gibraltar and then from Gibraltar to Northern Africa. 
and let's uh, let him talk a little bit at parties that he goes to and uh, let slip a few little sentences about they're planning something really big in North Africa. Because we know that spies always attend these parties and they'll say, hey, did you see General Montgomery? They're sending him over to North Africa. There must be something big going on there. And so that was their plan, was to, dr to dress up this actor named James and have him pretend to be the General Montgomery and to fool the, en uh, fool the enemy into looking where uh, the real General Monty wasn't so that they wouldn't realize what he was doing, namely planning the D-Day invasion with General Eisenhower in England. It almost messed up. Because everybody knew that General Montgomery did not drink alcohol. But the guy who was faking that he was General Montgomery was a wino. All right, that's a problem. And on one of the planes, he smuggled some rum and got himself pretty tilted. And when the plane landed, his aides kind of whisked him away and... Uh, said that he had to work on something that he couldn't, he couldn't attend the first function. And so they got him sobered up and they kept a close eye on him at parties after that. Um, but during this time, many of the Germans thought that Montgomery was planning some really big operation in North Africa. Meanwhile, the real General Montgomery was with Eisenhower in England planning D-Day. Another example of, of deception being used for a good cause is the lady on the right. And that is Dr. Martin Luther's wife. Well, she was in a place where she was not allowed to study the Bible. And she wanted to make an escape, she and several other women. And so they arranged uh, by sending some secret messages to have someone come into the convent where they were with a wagon loaded with fish, herring. Now, herring is not just an ordinary fish. It's an extra oily fish, meaning it smells really strong after a while. And so they took these barrels of herring and they hid the uh, women who wanted to escape uh, underneath, uh, well, behind the barrels of herring, and then they put blankets on top of that. And so when they were coming out of the gate and the guard was supposed to check what was going on, it was... Uh, kind of like lift up the blank, Woo! Oh, no thank you, move on out, thank you very much. And so that's how they were able to escape. So uh, if you've ever heard the expression, a red herring is a distraction, well this was a case where it literally was a lot of red herring that were used to uh, help Catherine von Bora to escape where she was and eventually she ends up marrying Martin Luther and becoming the mother of lots of children and, and uh, history would never be the same because of that. Okay, we'll try to move on to the next slide. Okay, tonight we're going to look at five witnesses, and they testify in the courtroom of life on God's behalf. The first witness is his physical creation. The second witness is the uniqueness of humans being created in God's image. There's no adequate explanation for that other than the biblical explanation for humanity. And then we have, of course, the Bible itself, the Holy Bible. It is the witness of witnesses. And then we also have the witness of Christ's coming to earth the first time. The earth 
has never been the same. It will never be the same because of his physical uh, coming to earth about 2,000 years ago. That in itself is a witness of God. And then we have kind of a scary one, and I'll give a little more attention to this uh, because this is one that doesn't get much attention, but it needs to be appreciated. And that is God's working in providential history. That's an unusual witness of God, but it's an important one. And actually, the scriptures talk about it some. But we'll get to that after we do the first four that you're uh, likely more familiar with. Okay, so let's um, move on to the next slide. The first witness. By the way, who's on trial? Is Genesis on trial? No. No, we are. Genesis puts us on trial. In John chapter 5, starting around verse 44 and going through verse 47, the Lord Jesus was addressing a hostile audience, and, he, and they were claiming to be followers of Moses. And he said, you read Moses, and you will find that he testified of me. And he will accuse you. I don't need to accuse you. Moses, who you claim to be his followers, he will accuse you. Because if you don't believe his writings, and he wrote about me, then why would you believe my words? Moses himself will accuse those who reject his writings. And Moses wrote Genesis. So for those who toss out the book of Genesis, saying that it's an allegory, um, it's uh, a sanitized version of pagan myths or whatever they're teaching in the local uh, secular colleges. Uh, I, I went to junior college and was taught all this um, baloney about what the Bible was. Uh, by the way, in fact, um, my sophomore year was really a good time. In fact, I, I, I said sophomore year. Really, it was about six of the best years of my life being a sophomore. But... Uh, I, I did have to eat a lot of bologna during that time, but eventually made it out of out of that time. And, and uh, but let me mention something about the witness of creation. And I don't know. I know I don't have to say a whole lot to to this congregation because you're up to speed on these things. But appreciate that for many in America, they have been given a picture of God, which is too small, uh, many have been raised in church settings where they are taught that God's role is to be the Savior. And I don't diminish that for one second. I am very glad that God is my Savior. Um, I mean, who would want to go to hell? Uh, but So it's wonderful to have God as my Savior. But to some... That is pretty much the only role that they think of when they think of God. And part of the reason why that happened was because more than 150 years ago, it really happened in two stages. Um, the first stage happened in the 1700s, actually, when many who decided they were smart... First uh, Corinthians one says that they are worldly wise, meaning they're foolish. They decided that they would study the world with a closed Bible. And many of the leaders were called deists, but it really doesn't matter what, what label they had. 
what matters is their actions. They decided to set a standard in society for studying the world with a closed Bible. And, the, and this happened two generations before Darwin introduced his natural selection evolution theory. So this is one that actually happened before Darwin. In, in fact, this really, in many places, conquered many institutions long before Darwin. The first trick of the devil was to get people to close their Bible and then try to study what we call science, ignoring what the Bible says. So if the Bible talks about a worldwide flood, they didn't pay any attention to worldwide flood. They just went out and they looked at rock layers and tried to figure out what do those rock layers mean? Ignoring the fact that someone who was an eyewitness from the past knew what happened and provided it in written form so that we can learn about it. A worldwide flood. The Apostle Peter talks about how they are willingly ignorant of the worldwide flood. Second uh, Peter chapter 3. The second um, step in that process came with Darwin and Huxley and, and Haeckel and all that crew. And their idea was we will disagree with what is in the Bible and give a different story of origins. Okay, so the first step was to get people to close their Bible, not necessarily disagree with it flat out, just get people to ignore it. You see how this is a deception? It's get them not to look at where the truth is, and then secondly, to get them to look at something else as a substitute truth. The result in the Christian churches was, among many people, they regarded learning about God's role as the creator as something controversial. And so they said, let's not talk about God's role as creator. Let's just talk about his role as savior. Well, it's wonderful that he's the savior, but it's also wonderful that he's the creator. In fact, if you don't get created, there's nothing to save. Or if you get created a grackle, you know, you, you don't need redemption. His grackles don't sin. But uh, so what happened was, to a large degree, for 150 years now, many churches have cheated God out of the glory he deserves as the creator. And they have cheated themselves out of enjoying what it means to be a creature made by a very personal creator who didn't want you to be like your neighbor or didn't want you to be like your brother or your sister. Wanted you to be exactly who you are and nobody else. That personalness of God. Kind of got lost in the shuffle. When many in the churches decided we're only going to talk about God being a savior. Uh, I could go on on that but we might that might take too long. So let's move on to the next slide. Creation is God's witness. The heavens declare the glory of God. We see that in Psalm chapter 19. And we see that all over the place. We see it with the aspects of creation that are not living, like the stars and, and the moon. Um, I have a whole talk uh, th that I'll be doing later um, this month on the effects of the moon. The moon rules. Uh, Genesis 1.16 says that the moon rules the night. And some people look at that and go, oh, that's just symbolic language. No, that's not symbolic language. That's telling the truth. Uh, the moon has gravity 
that pulls the water on earth and makes the tides. And you don't have any choice in the matter. There's no option of, well, I don't want to live on a planet that that has tides. You know, we're on a planet that has tides. I'm glad we are. Uh, You know, I like fish. I like seafood. There's a lot of things that wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the tides. In fact, uh, the lunar phases make a difference in how seeds uh, germinate and grow. And farmers uh, often plant using the lunar cycles. They may not know why it works, but they know that it does work. And it's because God has uh, positioned the sun and the moon and all the different motions that are involved so that the, the moon is pulling on the earth and also the light cycle as well. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that depend on the day, day and night sunlight, moonlight cycle in order for them to do what they do. I mean, uh, your animals, you know, your, your red crabs on Christmas Island, uh, they wait till it's high tide, which is part of the lunar, determined by the lunar cycle. That's when they go to mate. Um, the barnacles that depend on food to float to them because they're attached to something, they depend on the tides. You wouldn't have them. You have uh, uh, little salmon, um, juvenile salmon that are in a freshwater stream that are getting ready to go downstream and and go live in the ocean. Well, are they going to go when it's real bright so that all the animals that hunt at night and like to eat fish could easily see them? Actually, God has programmed them so that they use light sensors to sense when it is a dark night. And that's when they all go downstream. Um, in fact, uh, speaking of salmon, the, the salmon farmers off the coast of Norway, they instituted artificial lighting uh, on their walkway so their workers wouldn't fall in and drown and things like that or get injured. Uh, and the artificial lighting confused the fish. They thought it was still summer when it was starting to turn autumn because, you know, it felt like the midnight sun. You know, the, the sun just kept, the light was still there. So it got them confused. So instead of changing developmentally into the reproductive stage, that was delayed because their bodies thought it was summer. I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which the sun and the moon that God talks about in Genesis chapter 1 really do rule things on earth, living things as well as non-living things uh, based on gravity. But uh, it very much so, creation is a witness of God. It can't happen this well by accident. There's no way that it can be as complicated and work as well as it does and it all be an accident. Next slide, please. Um, Psalm 148, it's just a wonderful psalm. One of these days, just take Psalm 148 and read through it. It starts with the heavens and then after a few verses talking about what goes on on earth, it talks about animals, it talks about plants, it talks about people, it talks about the so-called big people, and it talks about the so-called little people. And, of course, there's no such thing as a little person. Um, that, you know, unless you're talking about size. I mean, babies obviously are smaller. But, uh, but if you're talking about value, if you're talking about worth, God proved what we're worth to him when he sent his son to die for our sins. He also proved our individual worth by making us who we are in the first place. It doesn't get any more personal than that. Him giving us the personal life that each one of us has. Okay, let's move 
to the next one. Um, we've talked about the cosmos. We've talked about the sun and the moon and its effect. So we'll move on to the next one. Uh, and the animals. Uh, we mentioned a few animals. We, we could think about all kinds of things that, that animals do. Uh, animals migrate. Of course, that's dependent on the sun and the moon as well. You know, whales that are up in Alaska uh, during the summer when there's lots of food for them to eat there, God has programmed them to know to go to Hawaii when it's getting colder and it's going to be winter. Um, that's not a bad idea. Uh, but anyway, the, uh, uh, he does that with the birds. Birds migrate. Instead of staying there when there's no food to eat and it's too cold and they freeze to death, God puts a little programming in them, you know, They've got their software, and their software is in this little hardware thing about that size that has wings, and they eat up a bunch of high-calorie um, energy bar-like food, and they tank up for the long flight. Well, the golden plover flies from Alaska to Hawaii. Um, there's, a, there's a problem with that if you do the math, because if you do the math and figure out how much calories it takes and how much mileage they get per gram of fat as they're burning their fat going there and realize they don't know how to swim and there's no stopovers between Alaska and Hawaii. So if you, if your fuel tank runs out and you're on empty, you just drop into the sea and then something in the sea eats you up, but something works. And at first those who study those kind of birds thought there's something wrong with the math here because we see how much uh, grams of fat they have when they start out from Alaska we see how fast they burn them per mile, and they shouldn't arrive. They should not make it to Hawaii. Well, what happens is they fly in V formation, and they take turns. So you've got one plover who's in the front, and he's hitting the headwind. It's hitting him the hardest, and so he's having to flap the hardest to fight against the wind. But he's breaking the wind for the two guys behind him, one to his left, one to his right. Yeah, that is my left, right. I'm trying to remember. And, and then, of course, behind those two are birds behind them. And the wind is slowed down at each level so that the ones at the very back are getting the least amount of wind so they don't have to flap quite as hard. They're not burning up quite as much fat. Well, after they've done this for a while, the point man in the front says... I'm worn out. And so he drops back to the back and everybody moves up a notch and they take turns. And as a result, they are actually able to get to Hawaii when one individual would not have enough fat to make it there. Now, how do you get that in a bird? Does the bird get the praise for that? Do you say, oh, plover, good for you for thinking that out. <laughs> no, that's not the way it works. God did the programming. And he's done things like that in all kinds of animals. Uh, I mean, we could be here for weeks and weeks and weeks just going over the different animals and how God displays his wisdom and how he cares for their needs and their motion and, and getting them to successfully reproduce. Let me mention one other real quick. There's a uh, bird called a red knot. Um, that's K-N-O-T, knot. And uh, it winters in South America. Not just in South America, but near the south part of South America. That is right near the bottom. And that's where it goes for what we call winter, which of course would be summer down there. Because they're on the other side of the hemisphere. 
And then when it starts to get cool down there, they head north because by the time they get to the northern hemisphere, it's warming up there. It's becoming spring, turning into summer, and they make it to the Hudson Bay, which is pretty far north in Canada. That's a long haul. Think about their frequent flyer miles. All right. So they put in the mileage. Well, that burns up a lot of energy, and they have to have little stopovers along the way to get some food. I mean, you talk about fast food. They don't have a whole lot of time. They don't need to dig around for something. It's hard to find. They want to land somewhere where there's a lot of high-energy food, gobble it up, get back in the air, and keep heading north. Well, they time their migratory flight. This is thousands of them to where they uh, go to a bay area, an estuarial area of New Jersey, and they get there just when the horseshoe crabs are coming ashore and laying their eggs by the millions. They just happen to show up. Now, those horseshoe crabs don't do that every day. There's a whole bunch that show up one day, and the, and the beaches are just flooded with horseshoe crabs, and guess what they're also flooded with? Red knot birds that just arrived and are hungry, and they eat up a lot of the eggs. Of course, there's so many eggs that it's, you're still going to have plenty of horseshoe crabs. But that's one of those things that the timing has to be right. If you show up a week too late, you go empty. Anyway, God's got all kinds of things like that where he shows his wisdom in taking care of animals. But let's move on. Let's think about our own blood. There are quintillions of witnesses of how great God is in putting us together and giving us a blood system that works, that carries oxygen to each cell of our body all the time. And we don't have to consciously think about it. In fact, if you had to consciously think about it, okay, uh, blood cell number 465, would you please go down to my left leg and deliver some? You'd never get anything done. But uh, I was talking about this once with somebody and I was saying, you know, this is this is a witness. And they said, well, yeah, that's that's one really good witness. Of God's creatorship. Oh, no. No, because every red blood cell is a separate witness. God had made every one of them. Every one of them performs this wonderful action of containing hemoglobin, which has some iron in it. And the iron attaches to oxygen. Basically, it rusts. That's what it does. It forms rust. And then it goes to where it needs to go in the body. And then it unrusts. The, the iron lets go of the oxygen. And that oxygen is picked up. And, and then while the blood's there, it picks up the waste product, carbon dioxide, and takes that back. But that's a whole other story. But anyway, every red blood cell is a separate witness of God's creative wisdom. Now, one of the things I do when I do serve as a trial judge is I have to schedule time in the courtroom. I have to figure out how many witnesses I have, how long they're going to speak. And so I need to know how much time do I have to work with. And if we're going to only have time for four witnesses today, then witness number five needs to show up the next day. So if there's going to be trial subpoenas issued and somebody has to take off work to show up as a witness, I don't want to have 30 people show up and only five of them testify and then all the others go, oh, sorry, I wasted all your time. You need to come back tomorrow and maybe we'll get to you tomorrow. Uh, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to work. So I try to schedule witnesses in a realistic way that makes the least inconvenience on their lives because they're not really there because they want to be there. Well, anyway, uh, we have 
billions of people on this earth. And then we have trillions of cells in our bodies. Now, I'm not good at doing math. In fact, my wife has told me, don't do math in public. <laughs> so I'm not going to do the math. I know that there's an article on our website that talks about this that does all the math for you. But I can do a little bit of it. All right. A thousand is one zero zero zero. Okay. I'm okay on that so far. All right, so one with three zeros is a thousand. Add three more zeros, you got a million. Three more, you got a billion. Three more, you got a trillion. All right, now you're talking, you know, federal spending level. All right. <laughs> three more, you got a quadrillion. Three more, you got a quintillion. All right, that's just a number I can say it, but I really can't think it. There are tens of quintillions of red blood cells racing around bodies all over the earth while we're sitting here. And every single one of them is a trial witness saying God is a great creator. I'm glad I don't have to schedule all those witnesses to show up and each one take his turn going. Yep. Let me tell you what I did in the last 24 hours. Uh, it's just amazing. Anyway, we have quintillions of creation witnesses just in the red blood cells that are inside human bodies on the earth at this present time. Well, let's move on. Um, our own lives, of course, are witnesses to God. And by the way, that's a real important race. Maybe some of you recognize that race there in the bottom right corner. Anybody recognize that? That's the human race. Okay, yeah, I might have a niece that's competing in that one. But, but anyway, that's the human race. Well, Romans one says, because that which was known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. We all really know about God. Atheists will say, oh, no, I don't know anything about God. Uh, I don't believe he exists. I don't have any proof of him existing. As they say that their words are proof that God made them and gave them the breath to speak blasphemy, gives them that choice. Of course, that's a choice that comes with consequences. Um, but what can be known about God, it's manifest. In fact, it is manifest in our own bodies. We can't escape our own bodies. Uh, and our own bodies are proofs of God's creatorship. Now, let's think just real quickly about DNA and RNA and ribosomes and a few other little things that are inside all of our different cells. The, uh, the, the, the quick lesson that the top middle diagram is showing you is that the DNA, which is deoxyribonucleic acid, which is inside all of your, your living cells, um, it's not in enucleated cells, which would be red blood cells, but pretty much all your other cells have it. The DNA is required to make RNA, ribonucleic acid. You can't get ribonucleic acid without ribonucleic acids. You can't get RNA without DNA. And you've got to have RNA in order to build pieces of proteins um, on the ribosomes. 
but you can't make DNA unless you have ribosomes. Do you see the problem? You got to have all three at the same time. If you take away any one of the three, you can't get the other two. You can't. It's an all or nothing situation. God made it all so that all the pieces were there. They were all moving together and they all moved the way they had to or else we wouldn't be here and our bodies wouldn't do a thing. It can't come together by accident. Okay, let's move to the next one. So, um, the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Notice it doesn't say that when we look at the world, we can see God's handiwork. It says it's clearly seen. Not, you know, it's kind of confusing. It's kind of iffy. You have to work hard at it. No, it's clearly seen. The proof is clearly seen. The result of that is that being it's understood by the things that are made, and we've all seen things that are made. I mean, as little kids, we know how to take this and this and make something. And so we understand how things can be joined together to accomplish some purpose. All of us understand the whole idea of things being made. And then we look out at the world God's made, and our mind, whenever it's willing to be honest, says, oh, the world was made. Understand that, which means there has to be a maker. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that to deny that is to do so without excuse. So uh, if someone were to say, well, you know, you can't prove the existence of God. All right. This verse says liar. It says no excuse. God does provide proof of himself. And it's not just proof. It's clearly seen proof. It is clearly seen proof that is so strong that to deny it is to do so without excuse. Um, over the years as a judge, I've seen a lot of excuses. I've seen some real interesting excuses. Um, one of them involved a guy who uh, was losing his job because he tested positive for marijuana metabolites. And he said that he had, he had had some about 15 years before, and he thought that that was trace amounts still in his system. When it looked like that wasn't going to win the day for him, the other thing was, well, you know, come to think of it, I was at a party the other week, and some other people were doing it, and I think I got secondhand smoke. Anyway, but uh, excuses are something we all see excuses all the time. But this is one excuse that won't work is to say, how was I supposed to know that God created the world and created me? The proof is there. It's what we do with it. That's what determines the consequences. Okay, let's move on. Well, as I mentioned before, uh, the fancy word for what was going on in the 1700s and it continued in the 1800s was deism. The label is not important, but the trouble that was caused, it is important to recognize that that people were trying to understand the world, understand their own lives with closed Bibles. And that is a Trojan horse because many formerly good institutions invited that kind of thinking into their schools, into their churches, into their seminaries, into other organizations, other institutions. 
And because it was invited in, that's why I compare it to the Trojan horse, because um, somebody disabled what should have been the security system to stop that kind of thinking before it got inside the camp. And of course, once it got inside the camp, that's when the trouble really broke out. Well, let's move on. And it's as First Timothy 6.20 says, science falsely so-called, meaning it's not true science. We'll move on to the second witness. This one we won't spend much time on, um, but the uniqueness of humans as created in God's image. We not only have these wonderful bodies that we have that breathe and eat and have eyesight and can hear and can walk around. Um, we not only have these bodies, but we also have the not physical part of us that lives inside the body. And when when somebody dies, the part of that person that is not physical separates from the body. And all you have left is just the physical body. Well, what's missing? The person is missing. And we use different words for that. We, we use the word soul, spirit, personality, uh, personhood. Uh, I'm sure there's a couple I've missed, but you get the idea. The part of you that is not physical, which is the most important part of you, um, that is something that has no explanation, no adequate explanation apart from the one that the Bible gives, that God made us unique in his image. He gave us qualities that nothing else has, that animals don't have, that plants don't have, that rocks don't have. There is something about humans that is just so qualitatively different, and it's because God put it there. And that in itself is a proof of, of uh, God's creatorship. Well, and, and so that's why humans make music. That's why we had music in here tonight. You know, uh, dogs and cats, they don't play musical instruments. Um, uh, they can respond. I mean, they, they, they can be aware of the sounds. I have a friend who has what they call a singing dog. And, uh, so when he will play loud music, the dog will go, arr, 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 arr. you know, I mean, he's trying, but I mean, you, you would never, you would never mistake him for a human. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move on to the next one. Okay. So mankind's origin is also unique. Um, there's just, and there's no explanation for how we got here other than the Bible explanation that fits the facts. A lot of false stories have been told about humans got here and the, the ones that are currently popular in secular circles all, all have us evolving from animals. Um, I, I'm working on a sad project. Um, later this month, I'll be presenting a, 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 a paper called Penguin Eggs to Die For. And this is, this really happened, um, in just, just before World War I, the British sent a ship called the Terra Nova to Antarctica. And they were, uh, they were going to accomplish a few things, they thought. They thought they'd be the first ones to the South Pole. Of course, the Norwegians beat them by a, a month and a couple days. But the five guys who made it to the South Pole and had their picture taken next to the Norwegian flag that was already there, uh, they, uh, sad to say, died on their way back to the ship. But the main 
scientific so-called reason why they were there was to get penguin eggs in their early stages in order to prove that Darwin was right and the book of Genesis in the Bible was wrong. That was their goal. They wanted to prove the Bible wrong and they wanted to prove that Darwin and his buddies were right. And they thought that by getting penguin eggs, they would prove it because they considered penguins to be the most primitive birds because they don't fly. That is, they don't fly in the air. They actually fly underwater. It's really, but that's another story. But anyway, and, and the other thing that threw them was they figured that penguins would be like, since they all evolved with the, all the other birds, that was their thinking, that they would uh, hatch their eggs in the spring and then raise them in the summer like all the other birds. Wrong. They did it in the winter, in the worst weather possible. <laughs> Minus 70 degrees. Sometimes 80 miles per hour winds. I mean, what would the wind chill on that be? And yet God has given them the toughness to where they can handle it. And the ones and they cuddle together and the ones on the outside of the huddle are getting the worst of the weather. And wouldn't you know, God programs something with them. It kind of reminds you of the golden plover. The ones on the outside, after they've been really beat by the weather, they come in toward the middle and then everybody in the middle moves out a little bit more and they take turns. How about that? You know, taking turns is not a bad idea. <laughs> Helps in traffic, too. Uh, but they were hoping, when they eventually figured out what the hatching cycle was, they thought if we can get an egg that's at the early stage and break it open, it will show us all of the different animals that evolved along the different path. And so if we get an egg that's real young, it'll show the fish stage. And then the next one will show some other stage. And the next one will show the reptile stage. And then the next one will be <clears throat> kind of half reptile and half bird. They risked their lives to get penguin eggs, thinking that they were going to prove that Darwin was right and the Bible was wrong. And they died for it. Now, it is a good thing to die for Jesus Christ. It is a dumb thing to die for a lie. It's a sad situation. But anyway, we know what our origin is. Uh, we all came from Adam and Eve. And then there was a big flood. And then we all descend from the, uh, the four couples who were on the ark. And there are flood stories in every literate culture around the world. And even in some cultures that don't have a written literature. They have an oral tradition and they're not as accurate as the Bible, of course, uh, because, you know, they weren't given prophetic perfection the way that God gives the scriptures, but it's a recognizable story. Um, you know, one of the, one of them that comes to my mind is that the Mayas have a story of this huge tortoise that four men and four women got on to ride out the global flood. Okay, it wasn't a tortoise, it was an ark, but you know, you, you can tell there's something going on there. But anyway, it, they have stories like in Alaska, they have them in Asia, they have them in Australia. It's all over the world. Well, why, does, why do all these different people groups who have completely different languages, who can't talk to one another, who are geographically separate, why do they all have some kind of a memory of a global flood? Because there was a global flood. <laughs> in fact, uh, even the Chinese... Um, Pictographs, the ancient Chinese language. The Chinese language is not alphabetic. It's based on picture symbols. And so um, I was with a, a Chinese uh, communist grad student years ago. Uh, it was 1995. 
And we were talking about the Bible. We were talking about God. And what bothered him was he had a problem with God not showing himself to the Chinese people. He said, if this God that you talk about in the Bible is so loving and kind and caring, why would he show himself to people on the other side of the world from China, but not show himself to the Chinese people? In other words, what he was saying was, why should I trust the Bible of your God? And why should I trust the God of your Bible? If I don't think he really cares enough to show himself to my people. And what I said to him was, I remember hearing or reading somewhere that the Chinese pictographs have the Chinese word for flood. And it's made up of three different elements, three different little picture symbols. And one of them is eight, as in not what you had for dinner, but eight, the number. I said, could you write that out for me? So he wrote it out. I said, now show me what show me what are the different pictographs that were added together. And when they're added together, they make the Chinese word for flood. So he showed me. I said, now, one of those is eight, isn't it? He said, yeah, this one right here. I said, why is that? He said, I don't know. Maybe when they made up that word, they were thinking of something that rhymed with eight or something like that. I don't know. I said, well, in the New Testament, it talks about. And actually, in the Old Testament, that there were eight people who survived the worldwide flood. He got to thinking. He said, you know what? The Chinese word for boat has an eight. Flood? Boat? When they're thinking up their language, you know, inventing their language from scratch, they're going to go with important things that are in their history that they've learned about. And they're going to base their words on that. It solved his problem. He said, you know what? God has shown himself to the Chinese people. They knew it long ago. They somehow lost it or wasted it. But that's not his fault. He became a Christian that night. And he became a very evangelistic Christian, I might add. Uh, Okay, well, we'll move on. Um, And I won't even tell you that the little girl in the bottom right was one of my grandchildren. No, I won't get into that. Okay, well, humans are concerned with more than just animal needs. We are qualitatively different from animals. We read, we care about uh, the rights of others. The postage stamp there on the bottom right is William Carey, who ended the social custom of burning widows in India. He he lobbied politically to get a stop put to that. the nation India would have a whole lot less people today if they had continued that practice uh, a couple hundred years ago. And then, of course, Christ would obviously be the ultimate example. But we'll move on. Um, We are God's image bearers. And how much uniqueness does a snowflake have? Every one of them is different. And all they are is frozen water. But God has chosen to put a unique beauty into every single snowflake. Now, I was a kid. I grew up in a place that had snow. We had a blizzard one one year. It was during the 60s. I don't remember which year it was. But we were out of school for three weeks. 
And we built tunnels in the snowdrifts. And one of the snowdrifts, it covered the front door. It went up to the second floor. My father had to go out the second floor window onto the balcony and shovel down like that. Anyway, I've seen snow. And I've shoveled my share. I don't need to do any more. Uh, but to imagine that every single snowflake is different. Now, who appreciates the uniqueness of each snowflake? How many snowflakes are going to get looked at under a microscope and maybe photographed so that we can see beautiful things like that? Most of the snowflakes will never get looked at by any human. So who is appreciating every single snowflake? God is. He's the only one that sees them all. And yet they are important enough to him to make each one different. And he appreciates each one. And he knows where each one of them is. And they're not even birds. They don't even have a life. They're just frozen water. Now, if God cares that much about the uniqueness of a snowflake, that's never going to be seen by human eyes. No human is ever going to care about the beauty of that one individual snowflake. How much more does he care about our individual lives? Most of the people, the billions of people who live on this planet today will never meet you or me. They won't know what God has done in my life, in your life. There are a few who will get to know you well. Some of them are rascals. But there'll be some who really care. But most of the world won't know who you are. You will come and you will go. The Bible says like a vapor. And most of the world won't care. But God has enough care in him to appreciate little snowflakes, just frozen water. No one else will see, but he appreciates every one of them. He knows every detail. He knows every detail of my life. He knows every detail of your life. We cannot know how much he cares for each one of us. We can't know. It's just too big for us to ever understand the level of detail that he cares for each one of us. That should help us to go through the challenges of daily life, knowing that he cares that much at the personal, unique level. Well, let's move on. That was my... Uh, Niece there sitting on top of my shoulders, by the way. We're moving on to witness number three, the Holy Bible. And this, of course, is the witness that is perfect. It is inerrant. It is timeless. The words don't change. That way, if you forget what the verse says, that's okay. Go back and look it up. If you don't have it memorized. Um, when it comes to my memory, I'll, I'll just say this. You could say I have a photographic memory, except it's out of film. <laughs> but let's see, to you young people who use digital cameras, that didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> oh, well, uh, I guess that's kind of like saying clockwise and counterclockwise. And the little kids don't have a clue what that means because all they've seen is digital clocks. 
All right, well, let's, let's move on to the next slide and we'll think about the Bible. We should revere God's word. And here's one reason why. Think about how much God honors his name. In the Ten Commandments, one of them says you're not supposed to use God's name in an unholy way. You're not to take his name in vain. What that means is you are never to use God's name with less than full reverence. Does our culture do that? <laughs> our culture uses God, misuses God's name all the time. And Ten Commandments says God won't hold someone guiltless who does that. That's how special God's name is. The Jewish people, um, when they would come to God's name, what we say Yahweh, it's Y and then an H and then a W and then an H. They wanted to avoid sinning by saying his name with less than full reverence. And so what they did was every time they came to whatever is Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which translates literally the Lord. They did it for so many generations that we actually don't know how to pronounce Y-H-W-H. We don't know what vowel sounds went there. You can guess. Most people have guessed that it's probably Yahweh, but we don't know that absolutely for sure because the, the Jews for many generations decided we know how to avoid committing this sin. We'll just never say his name. That way we can't get in trouble. Well, it's also something about the heart too. You know, it's not just how you pronounce his name. But anyway, the point being, God's name is very holy. And yet look at what Psalm 138.2 says. It says that he holds his word higher than his name. So if his name is that holy, what kind of reverence are we supposed to give to his word? And then can you imagine risking your life and huge amounts of money to go to Antarctica to try to find penguin eggs to prove that God's word is wrong? I mean, I can tell you they weren't thinking Psalm 138.2 when they did that. Anyway, so let's, let's appreciate the fact that God's word is just that holy. That's how he treats it. Okay, let's... Think about the Apostle Peter. Peter was a very privileged man. Peter was one of three disciples who was taken on the Mount of Transfiguration. Can you imagine how amazing that would have been when Christ appeared and showed his glory? And then two people from the past, one who had died and one who actually never died, um, you had Elijah who went to heaven without dying, and then you had Moses who did die. And somehow they end up talking with Jesus and James and John and Peter are allowed to watch this happen. And during that time, the um, the glory of Christ is allowed to shine in a way that it that it never did um, before that uh, and didn't until after he rose again. So he showed his glory. Now, would that be a proof of who Christ is? Would that make you know that you are sure that this is a good idea to believe in Christ? Would you ever forget that if you were Peter? And yet Peter says in his epistle, 2 Peter starting uh, in verse 16 of the first chapter, that we have a more sure word of prophecy. What he's saying is that the Bible 
is a greater authority than the personal experience he had watching Jesus transfigured right in front of his eyes, which would be unforgettable. And yet, as much as he tried to remember it, you you know that some of the details after the days and weeks and months and years would eventually get a little bit faded. And he'd be thinking, oh, man, I wish I could remember every detail of that. But memories do that. And the good thing about the Bible is the words in it don't change. If you looked at John 3.16 today, it says the same thing it said yesterday. And it's going to say the same thing tomorrow. It is changeless. It is a sure thing. It is a more sure word of prophecy than if you saw Christ himself glorified right in front of your eyes. And Peter has a right to say that because he experienced it. And having experienced, he said, yep, that's a wonderful experience. But having God's word is even better. Okay, and so there we have uh, those verses. Um, there's some other verses here for those of you taking notes that talk about how God has guarded his word. Psalm 12, 6 and 7, 119, 89, thy word forever is settled in heaven, and Mark 13, 31. Okay, move on. A um, couple more. Uh, Matthew five 18, I'm sure you've heard that every jot and tittle, so it's not just the main idea, that's inspired it's every word in fact every letter of every word and then of course christ said thy word is truth Um, that puts it really succinctly and uh, that's real user-friendly way to remember it okay and so we have the bible is the authoritative truth it is authoritative it is perfect it is error-free and uh, it's authoritatively relevant that's another thing that often gets lost in the shuffle. That's what the deists capitalized on. They said, oh, well, we're not going to quarrel with the Bible. We're just going to say that what it says is not relevant to studying nature. And so by acting like the Bible wasn't relevant, they escaped dealing with what they really believe, which was they disagree with the Bible. So in their hearts, they were saying the Bible is wrong. They didn't think that would get very far with the people they're dealing with. They say, well, let's not put it that way. Let's just say it's not relevant. We run into that all the time. People who are saying, what is in the Bible is not relevant to me. It's not relevant to you. It's not relevant to us. It is relevant. It is authoritatively relevant. Um, The Bible, of course, portrays life the way it really is. It is the only comprehensive explanation of everything that there is that really fits the facts. And that's part of how we know it's true. Um, Religion can be a distraction, and if the religion is distracting people from God and his word, one of the ways it will do it is it will say, it's all about you. Well, you know what? It's not all about me. It's not all about you. It's not all about us. It's really all about God. And thankfully, we get to belong to him because of Christ. And, uh, you know, that's a wonderful place to be. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's loads of religions all over the world, and some of them are very ecumenical, and they, they'll take Hinduism and Christianity and blend them together, and, and you get all kinds of, of, of weird things going on. But it comes down to replacing what Christianity is based on Christ. Christ is in the middle. Christ is the center. As soon as church or people uh, take center stage and Christ is pushed to the side, At that point, you're dealing with churchianity, not Christianity. And 
Uh, something to kind of put it in perspective. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Uh, what a wonderful piece of music, Handel's Messiah, which has taken this verse and set it to music. In fact, when you think about it, the way that the music was set, it gives you a little picture in your mind of the sheep getting into trouble. You know, it's not all we like sheep have gone astray. It's all we like sheep have gone astray. You know, you can just picture in your mind the sheep is just going all over everywhere except for where he's supposed to be. And thankfully, God comes after wayward sheep and he's the great shepherd, John chapter 10. Uh, we could talk about God's gift of scripture, but I can't see the clock. It's too dark. Oh, now I can see it. Okay. So we're going to have to get to that fifth witness because that's the one that we need to give a little extra attention to. So let's move on. And we're now at witness number five. Um, Belshazzar planned a party one time and he decided to use God's holy vessels to make fun of God and to praise idols, false gods. And he got a surprise. Something was written on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. The problem was what, how it got written on the wall was not a whole human body that did it. It was something supernatural that looked just like a hand. And so what he did was he called, did he call the wise men in to find out what the answer was? No. No. If you look at the different categories of wise men in the book of Daniel, there were about half a dozen different categories of wise men. And there's one category that Daniel belonged to. And so Belshazzar called all of the other categories of wise men, but left out the category that Daniel belonged to because he kind of sensed that if Daniel came in, it would be bad news. And uh, he was really he was really disturbed by what was written on the wall. In fact, the experience of seeing this thing happen that crashed his party, you know, graffiti crashing the party. Um, it uh, well, the King James says it caused his knees to smoke together. And his loins were loosened. What do you think that means? <laughs> I think he needed to change his pants. I think that's what that means. And uh, anyway, he was scared and he should have been scared because he was messing with God. He was making fun of God and God was tired of it. And when God decides that's it and he gives some people a long rope. But when he's tired of it, there's a day of reckoning. And this was his day. His number was up. And then what happened? Well, he was confronted by, and let's stay on this slide for just a moment. Um, he was confronted by Daniel, who got invited in because of the queen mother. And Daniel gave him a little quick history lesson, a family history lesson. And the interesting thing is, Daniel did not say, now, Nebuchadnezzar, you know from Scripture that what you're doing is wrong. He didn't say that. He didn't say, now, Daniel, uh, now, ne uh, Belshazzar, I'm, I might be getting my names mixed up. Daniel's a good guy. Belshazzar's the bad guy. Belshazzar's the king. All right. Belshazzar's the one who needs to change his clothes. And Daniel is saying, he doesn't confront him with Scripture. He doesn't confront him with witness number one, creation. He doesn't confront him with witness number two, the uniqueness of, of man creating God's image. He doesn't create him. Um, he doesn't 
um, confront him with the witness number three. But anyway, it was when Christ came to earth. I don't even remember seeing that one up here. Uh, but, but when Christ came to earth, that was a witness in itself. And the world has never been the same. And that's why this is year 2015. And even the atheists around the world, when they write what date it is, it's got to make them mad. Because every time they write a date, they are reminding the rest of the world that Jesus came about 2015 years ago. Now, when they switched the calendars, they did a little bit of a math bump. So it's not, it's not exactly right, but that's human, that's human math problems. That's not, that's not God's problem. But anyway, the fact that Jesus came has left effects all over the world. And the one that's the most obvious is how we keep time. We keep time before and after Christ. And you've got people who don't like that, and they say, well, let's go B.C.E. and, and uh, C.E. for common era and before common era. Well, how come you divide it? You just happen to divide it right when Christ comes. You know, what a dumb thing. But anyway, <laughs> Daniel confronts Belshazzar by saying, God worked in the life of your family, specifically Nebuchadnezzar, who you're a direct descendant of. And he demonstrated who he was in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, was Nebuchadnezzar a perfect man? Far from it. So is Nebuchadnezzar inerrant like the Bible? No, not at all. Very fallible sinner. And yet God's working in his life was strong enough proof of God that Daniel confronts Belshazzar with it. And says, you knew about God working in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And even though you knew all this, you rejected that God. You knew all this, but you did not glorify God, the one in whose hand your breath is. And so he was judged on what he did with the witness of a human being whose life God was working in. That is God's providential history. That is God working in history in the lives of imperfect people. He gives a witness. And people are morally accountable for what they do with your witness. When you are God's witness in their lives, what they do with it, what they do with your witness, even though your witness is not perfect, they will stand before God and give an account, just like Belshazzar came up short and Daniel told him why. OK, so look at this. Uh, you did not humble your heart, though you knew all this. He's telling him God acted in your family history. There was a witness in your family. And what did you do? The God in whose hand your breath is. And whose are all your ways, you have not glorified. That was the bottom line. That's why Belshazzar was going to be condemned. Okay? Now, the New Testament has the same basic thought. In 2 Corinthians 3, uh, Paul talks about how we are living epistles. Uh, you know, the New Testament has epistles, letters that were written. Um, you know, that was before emails, so they... Wrote it on pieces of paper. But it's the same idea. Uh, taking, taking information, taking thoughts, communicating. And we are 
living epistles. Now, we're not inspired perfect like the Bible. So the Bible's inerrant. We're not. We're fallible. But we still present enough truth that the people that we give truth to will be held accountable for it, just like Belshazzar was. That puts them on the spot, doesn't it? Does that put us on the spot too? Oh, yeah. Because look at the responsibility we have to be good living epistles. So we're not God's word, but we're kind of like paraphrases, you know. And so try to be a good paraphrase because you're the only Bible some people will ever read. That is, you're the closest thing to a Bible some people will ever read. That's the scary part. Okay, so as we strive to glorify God, we are being watched by others. And we can share the five witnesses that God has given to the entire human race to show what kind of a God he is. We can tell him about his creation. We can remind him that humans are uniquely made in God's image. We can remind him that this is A.D. 2015 for a reason, because Jesus came and there's never been anyone like him before, and there'll be never anyone like him since. And, of course, we have the scripture, which perfectly provides truth. And then we even have God working in the lives of fallible humans. And yet it's a strong enough proof that a person can be condemned for refusing the truth that God gives through our witness to others. Okay, so I I, I thought I may as well throw this in there. What is the worst Bible translation? It's the closed Bible. Because no matter how good your translation is, if you don't open it up, it doesn't do any good. So the closed Bible is the worst translation. Whatever Bible you have, get it open, read it, personalize it, share it with others, obey it, honor God with it. And then the scariest paraphrase is you and me. Because we're the only paraphrase that some people will see. So we don't want to be a misleading or unreliable paraphrase. We want to accurately provide God's truth to others. That kind of looks like we're done. Okay, well, let's... Thank you. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for being the great God that you are. We love you as our Savior, but we also love you as our Creator, as the one who is the greatest teacher, who gives truth in so many different ways. You have given your truth through creation, through the uniqueness of humans, through your Son coming, through your Word, and even through our fallible lives. And you are so great and so personal, and you've made each one of us unique. Help us not to compare ourselves with others, but just to appreciate the individual life that you've given to each one of us, the individual assignments that we can glorify you one day at a time. Thank you for being who you are, God. In Jesus' name, amen.